Hi friends, Arun here with the latest episode of Get Wise College Admissions Explained, where we'll tackle this week's fundamental truth, test scores are never the most important thing. And it's a barn burner. Paul Kanarak is not only one of College Wise's leaders, but he's a longtime leader in the world of test prep. We've got plenty of insight on this topic at collegewise.com, but you'll marvel at Paul's turns of phrases and his insight. I guarantee you're going to have a few laughs along the way too. So let's dive in with one of my favorite Englishmen this side of James Bond and Idris Elba. So we're here for episode four of Get Wise, College Admissions Explained. And our topic is test scores are never the most important thing. And I'm incredibly fired up to have my arch rival, Paul Kanarak here. Um, Paul is one of the partners at College Wise. And in all fairness, um, one of the most thoughtful people when it comes to the world of college admissions, in particularly when it surrounds testing. And so we're going to be diving into a great conversation. Paul, thanks for uh, joining us. It's my pleasure. It's my first podcast. I hope it is not my last. Obviously, this world of standardized testing in relation to admissions is a huge one. And you've been um, deeply involved with it. I think the SAT was first offered in, what, 1926? What was that like when you sat down for it? Well, it was very difficult because my pet dinosaur was sick that day, so I had to walk seven miles uphill both ways. But other than that, I survived. And, I mean, obviously there were no calculators, so you did they allow you to bring an abacus in? Yes, that along with my chisel and my rock uh, sort of led to an interesting testing experience. Of course, I was only 17 at the time, so I've adapted since then. Anyways, let's uh, let's get to the core of what we want to talk about um, today. I, in fact, I would love for you to tell folks a little bit more about how you even found your way into this place where you're so highly regarded when it comes to standardized testing. I was 23 and left UCLA when I started the Princeton Review as one of its five founders. Um, interestingly enough, the entire intent of starting that organization was to prove that the SAT was well, to be frank, bullshit. That was also the concept that we came to the table with. Um, and our entire idea was if we could show that the SAT was fundamentally coachable, it wouldn't be used anymore because we already knew it was a ridiculous instrument. Uh, the results were published in Time Magazine and Rolling Stone, pleasing my mother to no end. And as a result, everyone started calling and saying, can you help my kid? So from a science experiment, a business was born. It was pure happenstance. Oh, that's and and did the Princeton uh, the university that you maybe named yourself after did they ever file any sort of uh, copyright infringement? No, one of our uh, it's a great question. Uh, one of our founders, John Katzman, went to Princeton and he had was buddies I think with one of the provosts and he said, "Can I do this?" And we only had two rules: we could never use orange and black, and we couldn't use a tiger as a mascot. Other than that, we had complete license. Look, it was 1983. You got rid of, you got away with all kinds of things in 1983. There were no rules. And in general, we brought pride to the university. We didn't bring them agitus. You know, when we started this podcast, um, Frank Martinez, our producer, had a vision. And we were going to talk, particularly in this season, about the fundamental truths of college admissions. And we are seeing now on an almost daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis, standardized testing is something that's being dramatically changed. <laughs> in terms of um, how the coronavirus has impacted the way colleges and universities work at it. 
if you were to give an overview of kind of the state of where standardized testing sits, and for right now, let's maybe keep our focus on the SAT slash ACT, the Pepsi, the Coke. How would you talk to students and parents about that? You're now seeing the final piece of the date evolution of these tests. I mean, for years, you, you know this, Arun, you're one of the only people on the planet who's worked at three major universities in terms of admissions. You sat at Chicago, you sat at Caltech, you already know the purpose of these exams, and you already know actually how unimportant they are, right? But parents forever are prisoners of their own experience. So they had to go through this, so they continue to believe the SAT is important. But the SAT hasn't been actually all that important in admissions for 10 or 15 years. In the last five years, it's become increasingly less so. And I think what COVID did was it gave high altitude cover to universities to say, let's get rid of this thing that we don't really like, that we don't really want, and now we have license to abandon it. I really think that's what's happening. And now that the genie is stuffed back into the bottle, if we're lucky, it'll never get out again. Right. Well, it's interesting, you know, beyond um, just the parents, I think when you speak to a lot of our friends who are in the world of admissions, they often speak about how faculty are deeply committed to the SAT because it was their high scores that got them into this particular school, then that doctoral program. And then they've often linked their own success to it must mean something, you know, but when push comes to shove, many of them wind back and go, yeah, that was pretty inconsequential to my own uh, dreams and goals. And you did mention, you know, I worked on the university side, um, but at the same time, I'm not sure it was ever clear to me what the purpose of the tests were. And we sometimes hear about, um, do these tests measure intelligence? Um, can you talk a little bit about what these tests are even out there measuring? Well, you mentioned in 1926, the SAT began, right? What people forget is the guy who founded it created the exam to prove the intellectually, intellectual superiority of the white male. That was the origin of the test. So from that, they began to be perceived as IQ tests, so much so, so they had that name, Scholastic Aptitude Test. Um, even into the 80s, the belief was that if you somehow did better on these exams through coaching, aka cheating, that you would end up in a place where you did not belong. I think sort of the intellectual equivalent of smoking is good for you. Right. Um, and then as people sort of became aware that the SAT measured simply how wealthy you were and how good you are with bubbles, they began to ask what sort of what are the natural questions, which are why are we using this thing? And eventually it was just habit. Right. We're used to it. I think there's a secondary reason. It was a very easy way to say no to a large number of kids that was palatable. Oh, your SAT scores weren't high enough. No one objected to that. Um, but it's had its day. I, I, you know, I said this to you beforehand privately. I think the SAT is insidious. I think the SAT is invidious. I think it's perfidious. And I think all three of those are SAT words that aren't any use at all. So you did mention just even the evolution of the language, right? That we, they used to be called way back in the day, the boards, college boards, and then they became scholastic aptitude tests. And now I think it's trademarked as just simply the SAT. I think the college board tells us it doesn't stand for anything. It speaks to, to a certain extent, th this is business, this is marketing, you know. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Because I, I suspect a lot of students and parents don't actually understand, you know, this Coke versus Pepsi when we talk about the SAT versus the ACT. If, if you could give them some sense of the, the education industrial complex as told to us by standardized testing companies. 
So the SAT is one of College Board's biggest money makers, but it's a big money maker for a reason that most people don't realize. It is the PSAT and the SAT that gives them all of the information they need to sell to colleges so that colleges can market to kids. And that money is 80 plus million dollars a year with no costs attached to it. Mm -hmm. So even if they, they ran the SAT at like a uh, break even, which they don't, they make plenty of money, the ability to sell that data is worth so much to College Board as an organization and its power as well as from its economic standby. And look, as a parallel, you all experienced this year this ridiculous, absurd AP ad lib. <laughs> Hi, take an AP, spend 17 minutes on it at home, don't sort of cheat or in any way look at another website. Well, of course, that's not gonna happen. But the only reason it occurred and the colleges backed them was College Board didn't have $400 million to hand back in refunds. So when you talk about the education industrial complex, do not be offended or insulted when an institution feathers its own nest. And recently, ACT has been equally guilty, which is a departure for them because they were always the science nerds who kind of messed up at marketing. And now they're in the same sort of bailiwick as is College Board. Yeah, I do think for a long time, you know, being someone from the Midwest, shout out to Ohio, um, the ACT was always seen as this kind of benevolent little sibling you know sibling to the college board but now you know years later they've they've kind of developed themselves into a um a behemoth itself but the industry um aside we're in a place where an increasing number of schools are going test optional can you tell the parents and students what test optional means and if you've got a little bit of history behind that feel free to share that as well Happy to do so. I have a question for you. Are you getting bored with Ohio State beating Michigan? Or is it the kind of thing that every year is just as tasty and delicious? Uh, it's It gets actually more delicious, if you can believe that. You know how that 10th, 20th potato chip, that it feels yeah. like that, that times 100. It's got to be weird to have like an 11-year-old kid in Michigan who's actually never seen the Wolverines win. But but I, I, I apparently I digress. So <laughs> schools initially went test optional led by the most liberal institutions like the Bates and the Colbys and the Middlebury's because they were the first to realize that they were not putting their money where their mouth was, that they had these missions and these educational philosophies that were inclusive using a test that was clearly a proxy for privilege. So it began there. Over time, what it became was a very clever marketing ploy on the parts of colleges because they would get more applications, which was good for their ranking, um, their test scores, ironically, would go up because the lousy test takers weren't submitting scores, which was good for their ranking. Um, and it sort of pleased the faculty and scratched that elegaic itch, which was like, we're serving all kids equally. And that triptych was pretty powerful. Um, now they're going test optional in droves because they fundamentally understand if they demand tests this year, they're excluding massive amounts of the population and doesn't serve their interest. So in all instances, except maybe with the first few, like again, the Colby, the DePauls, the DePauls, they did it out of economic self-interest. Um, and they're continuing to do that, but I don't care what the reason is. As the tests go away, I am happier because it comes full circle to the original opening pre-bleeped statement. The SAT is bullshit, and now it's going away. Yeah, well, is it going away, though? Is it going to fully go away? I mean, we're, we're seeing a number of these schools do one-year tests, 
three-year tests. I think a few years ago we saw the University of Chicago make a bold um, make a bold move to say we're going test optional, and we thought there would be a whole bunch of highly selective schools follow them, and it never quite happened. That's a fair question. Um, several years ago, Arun, I remember you and I spoke that I think it was Harvard and maybe Princeton abandoned early decision, early action because they knew it so powerfully favored the wealthy. And then business dynamics forced them to change, and they, they went back. Could that happen again? Yes. Here's why it is unlikely. Rapid history lesson. Up until 1967, the SAT was a regional test. Maybe 50 schools used it, and they used it to sort of find kids outside of the Northeast. And then the UC system came along and said, no, we want this test. And 1967, the decision by the UC system to adopt the SAT nationalized the exam. And within three years, the entire country was sort of requiring SATs. Flash forward 53 years, the UC systems unwound that decision. I expect that the long-term ramifications of this are gonna be powerful, wonderful for students, and lousy for the test makers. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Um, I, I think, you know, um, my instinct is to 100% agree with you that this is good for um, students. It's good for parents. Um, maybe it's not great for test uh, preparation providers, but these tests have lasted for a while. Do you see there being what upsides do they provide, um, if not the students, on the admissions side, what value have they held, even as minimal as it might be? Well, so this will sound somewhat geeky. Bear with me. <laughs> I don't expect anything less, so go <laughs> Thank with Thank you. It. There's this notion of correlation, right, where zero is random and one is perfect. And sort of the higher the number, the more there is a cause and effect. So when colleges look at GPAs, the correlation between GPA and first-year college success is about 0.56, which is pretty good. Here's what's stunning. You know what it is between the SAT and college success? It's 0.55. Yep. So what that tells you is the SAT is almost as good as four years of GPA at predicting a kid's college success. That's remarkable for a single three-hour exam, right? Right. The problem is when you combine them, which is what we always do, well, then it jumps up to 0.57. That's not worth it. The right. squeeze, the juice is not worth the squeeze, right? So is the SAT as a standalone thing, does it have utility? Yes. Does it occasionally highlight a diamond in the rough? Yes. Usually it's a lazy young male who's bright and doesn't do the work. Does it occasionally find someone in the Adirondacks who would never have sort of thought that she could get where she wants to go, but she sees her SAT scores? Sure, that's possible. But the price we're paying is the 10,000 kids on the other side in inner city schools who go, I'm not smart enough to be good in college. And that is too high a price to pay for too small an instrument. Yeah. No, that's a great way of uh, framing it. And, that, and, and, and this brings me to something, and maybe it almost feels mechanical in nature, but we've got a lot of students, a lot of parents, we've been doing these webinars for the past few months, thousands of students attending, and over and over, the number one question surround testing. It's clearly this key point of focus in terms of their anxiety, their stress. What advice are you giving students right now as they look at, you know, a multitude of colleges, all offering different testing plans and options? Who are you suggesting go ahead and, yeah, you need to take the test versus a kid. Eh, you're fine. 
go ahead and skip it. What advice are you giving those kids? You love to run. Do track. Don't swim. You love to sing. Go on stage. Don't join the computer club. You love to fill in bubbles and you're good at it and it fills you up and you sort of get to flex, then flex. If you stink at taking standardized tests, I see no reason to subject, subject yourself to that particular form of abuse. Right. Um, and that's the advice that I would give. I, I want to expand that slightly, Arun. Please. The reason we're getting asked the question is because parents at the fundamental core perceive college admissions as a meritocracy, sort of a prize to be won, best numbers win. You and I know that's not true. But this year, it's never been less true, right? It's because I don't really have second semester grades to look at. I don't have standardized tests to look at. Therefore, it is the beauty. It's the perfect time to sort of present nuance. So run in that direction. Don't run towards bubbles unless you're really, really good at them. That's the advice I would right. give. Right. And I, and I certainly know as a counselor and all our colleagues who are counselors, the focus really is on helping them think about what kind of growth they're going to have at the social emotional level, how to dive deeper mm -hmm. into subjects that they already love rather than this fixation on, well, let me start with SAT prep or ACT prep, and then I'll figure out everything else. And I do think you're hundred percent right in speaking to colleges, um, speaking to other counselors. Uh, the conventional wisdom has really um, been reshaped in recent months to, I think it's okay to let students not fixate on that in a way that they might have in the past. That being said, um, Paul, we do know that there are schools that, as of now, um, here in mm -hmm. late May, are continuing to require the SAT and the ACT. It's an expectation. You know, that could, of course, change in the yep. fall. Um, and so you've got that kid who's, they've got that 1,500, and they're unhappy because they're applying to Columbia, who's doubling down and saying, yeah, we're expecting you to take, take those tests. Um, what are you telling that kid who's got the 1,500 and... Columbia is their their dream. I don't think this advice has changed for me in 35 years. I like to reframe that question. Hi, I got a 1500 and I am so comfortable in my own skin that I'm just going to submit that and then go do really interesting other things like volunteer or deliver groceries or walk someone else's dog for them or sing in my church choir. Or you can say, I am so neurotic that a 1,599.9% wasn't good enough and I want to get to 1,510 and 1,520. Which kid do you think Columbia is going to want in their dorms? That's a rhetorical question because you know the answer. Um, sidebar. Here's where I have such tremendous empathy. Families that come from cultures that are not North America come from cultures that are entirely test-dependent. So if you're coming from China, all admissions are based upon the Gaokao, a standardized test. The same in Japan and South Korea. In India, it's called the CAT. In England, it's called the A-levels. So when you come from a culture that's 100% test dependent, and then you hear us sort of say, well, tests aren't that important. That's a pretty large chasm for them to jump. And for that, I, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and those cultural um, traditions run deep and for generations, right? So to try to separate that mm -hmm. out with, ah, oh, they're not important. Um, and I think that's hopefully part of the, the value of a, a conversation like the one we're having, where some folks who don't fully understand the role that testing plays specific to the admissions office, um, hopefully they develop a better understanding. So if testing isn't the most important thing, 
the question now becomes, well, well, what is? And so, you know, you, you've counseled students as well. Of course, your deep expertise is in testing. Um, what you're a father. Um, what what are you encouraging kids to to think about in terms of the admissions process? So it's really hard for me not to analogize. And I use analogies because I think if I apply regular life that they that we understand to something that maybe we are intimidated by, the parallels become obvious. So we think about looking for a job, right, Arun? It starts as an objective process. I look at your resume. It ends the subjective process where I sort of talk to you and I always hire the person I like, always. So admissions is exactly the same way. There's an objective process. It's called your transcript. Right. But for almost every kid, the answer to is she smart enough to come to my school is, is usually yes. So then it becomes entirely a subjective process, which is does she fit? Do we like her? D does he sort of fit the, the, the image that we like? Um, and that's where I would spend all the time and energy because you know the classes you take and the grades you get consistently say, yeah, you're smart. You're good enough. Right. Now show me why I want you. So put differently, are you smart enough to come here? And do we see you doing well here? And I would advise people to spend their time on the second piece, not the first. Yeah, and 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 you really bring up that great point, that likability being so central, uh, so central to the decision making process on the admissions side. The vast majority of kids who applied to UCLA, Caltech, Chicago, where I worked, were admissible in the academic sense. So then we had the luxury to pivot away from the transcripts, from the test scores and turn our eye towards that likability. How would how might they impact our campus? How might they help people around them grow? And I think the, the sooner more students spend their time, their energy focus on that, frankly, the stronger of applications um, that they will have. So let's get a, let's get a little bit more into some of your um, test prep expertise, um, because there are families out there who are trying to make decisions. There, there's a lot mm -hmm. up in the air right now about testing, you know, will the ACT be offered during the summer? Will the SAT be offered um, online? Right now, I've got a um, ambitious student who's likely to have a few schools that will continue to re um, require the SAT or the ACT, but they haven't had a chance. They're wrapping up junior year. They haven't had a chance uh, to take any of those tests. What are you suggesting to them in terms of when to prepare, when to take it, and then let me throw one little SAT style. Let me throw one little uh, twist into it. What about the subject tests? There's still a handful of highly selective schools that are saying we recommend them. How do you advise a kid on tying that into the SAT ACT equation? So I'm going to break this answer into three pieces. Piece number one, because I've known you for many years, I actually know because you shared with me why you left Caltech. It was because with all those wonderful kids, you got sick or tired of saying no. I think it's really powerful. Because admissions officers hate to say no. They want to say yes. And they're going to say yes at a deeply personal level, well beyond the framework of the 1 through 36 scale. Right. Now to answer your question. The very first job you have as a student is to decide, am I going to focus on the SAT or am I going to focus on the ACT? It begins, middles, and ends there. That is the very first fundamental choice. That nonsense of taking both just needs to be slaughtered a la Dracula <laughs> and a steak in Transylvania on a wet <laughs> evening. Okay, that's job one. Job two, if you are a rising senior, as in your class of 2021, I would gear towards the August test. Because when you go back into school, 
reintegrating, dealing with people, getting back in a flow that you've not been in for several months is going to be exhausting and you don't want to be exhausted. So if your concern is I'm gonna have forgotten the material, no, you haven't. The stuff you did in the junior year isn't on these ridiculous tests, right? So it's not about forgetting the material, it's all about maintaining your psychological, emotional health. So I would gear towards the August test and I would probably back it up pretty quickly with a September or an October test. That's how I would do it. And if I chose to prepare, I would do two things. I would do it in the summer and I wouldn't spend a fortune on it. Yep. They're not worth spending a fortune on anymore. Yep. And your third question, subject tests. In a weird way, they are more honest than is the SAT or the ACT because they legitimately show how well you know a subject. And the tricky part here is traditionally these are taken as you wrap up AP exams. And this year they can't right. be because they've been delayed and they've been delayed and taken to August. So you're gonna have to review subjects in which you took APs. I would recommend buying previously released subject tests in your subject. And of course, English and math are ongoing educational experiences, so you can do those. And I would lean almost exclusively, probably, I think they're, are they offering them in October again this year or no? Do we not? I believe yet? they are. That's the current plan. I, I would probably gear myself towards October subject tests and I would gear myself towards an August SAT. Yeah. I probably wouldn't go much much earlier than that because I just don't know how open the country is going to be. Does that answer your question? It does, and actually with a lot of clarity. And, and I'll add that there are a number of the schools that have early deadlines of November 1st who have been very open with, we recommend these tests and we'll still consider your November tests, which is a little bit of a twist because mm -hmm. previously they used to say your October test would be the last one um, we'll consider. You talked about don't spend a lot of money preparing on this. And listen, at CollegeWise, we've got SAT tutors, subject test tutors. Um, what are other ways, though, that students, what are effective ways? I mean, you mentioned um, subject tests going out and buying, somewhat conspiratorial tone. I think some people might hear buying subject tests. Well, you're not talking about the black market on Reddit, right? What, what are you referring to when you say go out and buy subject tests? And what, what's, what are inexpensive but effective ways to do test preparation? So first of all, I love the fact that you think I have the slightest idea as to what Reddit is. Thank you for those props. I greatly appreciate <laughs> it's it. It's a cousin of TikTok, secondly, man. You'll be fine. <laughs> I'm just quitting now. Um, secondly, uh, the testing companies, go figure, have decided that they're going to sell materials for the tests that they consistently tell you are uncoachable. Q irony, right? So when I talk about the subject tests, I talk about going to College Board's website and laying out the $18 or whatever it is to buy the previously released subject tests. So if I'm a student and I'm not that concerned about the SAT or I don't want to spend a great deal of money, here's the correct combination. You use the Khan Academy resources, which are free, or the ACT free resources, which I think they partnered with Kaplan on, mm -hmm. and you buy as many previously released exams as you can get your hands on and then it's just drill, 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 and review. This is a test that's a pattern recognition test. So this is really important in test prep. If you get a question wrong, you have to learn why you got it wrong. And then you should never make that mistake again. They have to show you how they beat you. And then you never let them beat you the same way twice. All of the value in test prep is to teach you those moments where you step off the wagon. <laughs> and if you focus only on the things you get wrong and why, you get a much, much higher score. 
and test prep simply reinforces that with relentless unilateral vigor. Bring that to you home to yourself, you'll be fine. Oh, I love, yeah, again, I love the clarity and the directness with which you shared that. It's making me realize we, we, we didn't really spend any time uh, talking about how is the SAT even different from the ACT? What, what are the differences? And how does a kid know which test might be better for them? How do they make that decision? Because you did say focus on one. You don't need to focus on both. So what are the differences? How do they prepare? I'll do the second part first. ACT versus SAT. If you're better at English and reading, you will almost always prefer the ACT to the SAT. If you like math and computation, you'll almost always prefer SAT to the ACT. If you look at your PSAT scores and your math score is at least 70 points higher than your English score, you're an SAT kid. If it's the other way around, you're an ACT kid. If you go to a parochial school, a religious school, almost always you will prefer the ACT. If you are a kid who studies super, super hard, but tests are not easy for you, you'll almost always prefer the ACT. If you're a kid who's kind of lazy and bright and does Thursday's homework on Thursday morning, you'll probably prefer <laughs> the SAT. And having said all of that, guys, take a practice test in each and figure out which one you're best at. That's the answer to the second question. And because I'm elderly, I actually forgot the first part <laughs> of the question, which was what? What's the difference between the SAT and the ACT? Um, spelling. <laughs> They're the same thing. They used to be very, very different, but now they really do focus on common core. So think to understand. And this is really time, important, Paul, what, you, what you're sharing yeah. here, because I think there can be this sense of, well, the ACT has a science section and I love mm -hmm. science. So yeah, please continue your thought. I just want people to really hear this. So once upon a time, the major customer was the university. as Because universities began to clearly signal, we don't like your tests anymore. These companies shifted and made school districts their most significant customer to the point that SAT hired David Coleman, the architect of Common Core, to lead the redesign of the SAT, right? So these tests are now designed for high school audiences and high school districts around the Common Core curriculum. Thus, they tend to look very similar, the same number of answer choices. Here are major differences. The ACT is very speeded. That means you don't have very much time per question. You have about 50% more time per question on the SAT, right? But the SAT goes much more in depth and is much more complicated in its ask than is the ACT, right? And the science section that you spoke of, it's a reading comprehension test that happens to use science. So I find these tests are far more similar than they are different um, and should be regarded as such. Usually people have a flavor that they do better with, which is why I gave the previous advice. Right. Well, and speculating a little bit now, looking into the crystal ball, there is a real possibility um, because both the College Board and the ACT folks have announced that they're developing online versions, at-home versions of the SAT and the ACT. Does your advice change there or do we simply not know enough? We don't know enough. If they're smart, They'll move to adaptive testing that is much harder to coach and gets to the right answer far more quickly. Um, there's technology now, Arun, that can give really good input into a kid's sort of academic style and abilities within 30 questions. Wow. Right. Um, 
almost certainly what is going to hold back SAT and ACT is what held back Blockbuster when they were competing with Netflix. The people at Blockbuster truly believed that folks wanted to go into the stores, wait in line, and get dinged $4 a day for not returning the thing on time. They believed that was the correct strategy. I think SAT and ACT continues to believe that their tests are done the way they are, and that they'll have trouble adapting. They'll get swamped by a new test. Ah, right. And we do know the University of California system in opting out of these current standardized tests have talked about they'll look to develop their own. Um, I want to talk about another test because I know we have um, some parents of younger students on here. And this also relates to the idea of the role that testing can play with merit-based money. But before we dive into that little conversation, what the heck is the PSAT and should this should kids care about it? The PSAT is the practice SAT. It is linked to a scholarship program called National Merit. Let me sort of give a positive answer to the PSAT. Hey, it tells you are you good or bad with bubbles, and it does so in an incredibly low stakes way, and it's not necessarily bad for kids to know that, right? But it's also the entryway drug to the SAT. And kids who take the PSAT are far more likely to take the SAT than they are the ACT. And obviously, they get all kinds of data they can sell to colleges. And it's so powerful that the PSAT, which was designed for juniors, now has a PSAT 10. And there's a PSAT 9. And there's a PSAT 8. And coming soon to a womb near you is PSAT early birth. <laughs> you always know how to take it to the extreme, Paul, which is why we uh, love and admire you in so many ways. So. We do know that, you know, you mentioned the scholarship program, and even with the dismantling of standardized tests being part of the admissions process, we are hearing plenty of talk about scholarships haven't necessarily been uncoupled. In fact, even the UC um, statement they talked about, testing can still play a role both in terms of placement, in terms of courses when you enter college, and um, scholarship opportunities. So for the kid who's like, Listen, this is fine and good, Arun and Paul, with you guys talking about this pie in the sky, apply to test optional. But, yo, even if I get in, I've got to be able to pay for it. How do those kids need to think about uh, their testing? So you've just sort of run into something I've been saying in front of audiences all over the world for years. The SAT and the ACT are nowhere near as important in admissions as you think they are. Mm -hmm. They are exponentially more important in getting money than you understand. So when you apply the lens of, I want merit money, these tests matter. Right. Ask yourself why. They help with the rankings, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is human psychology. Exactly. Everyone knows that Arun scored a 1540 on his SAT or a 33 on the ACT. And then all of a sudden, Arun ends up at the Miami of Ohio. And everyone in the school goes, wow, Arun went to Miami of Ohio? That place must be better than we realized. And there's this huge jet stream that follows Arun in that pays full price. So as long as consumers behave that way, as long as consumers look at the SAT and the ACT as the straw man of quality, those tests will be directly linked to money. So speaking to parents, it's your fault. Right. Stop making decisions based upon average test scores. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is one of these chicken-egg scenarios, right? We can get very easily frustrated by the colleges that uh, continue to require it. But now we've seen many of them go test optional, but we're still finding a lot of students and some parents who are like, yeah, but I still want you 
to take that. Paul, let's go back to the test optional thing because this is, this is a question we've been getting a, um, a lot of. There are some kids out there who could do well if they did a little bit of preparation and they're surrounded by kids who maybe have the same GPA, similar um, extracurricular personal profiles. Their test score isn't quite as good. What's the admissions process going to think of the kid who says, I'm going to skip it even, even though all my peers have taken it and done well? How, how is the admissions process going to treat them? So there's 10 kids from my school, nine of them scored 1400 and I'm the kid who chose not to submit a test score. And am I therefore damned in the absence of a test score? Mm -hmm. Is that fundamentally the question? Exactly. Well, you've been an admissions officer. You know the answer to this. Hey, you chose to submit test scores. You chose to talk about how wonderful volleyball has been in your life. I admire both sides because I already have the answer to my first question. Are you smart enough to go here? And you know what? You took three AP classes and you have a 3.8 and your teachers have said really interesting things about you and your passion for learning. And you did astronomy on the side, which is kind of a cool thing. I don't care about bubbles. I already know you got game. Now show me why you belong here at Tulane. Right. That's how I would say it to parents. Well, this really speaks to the fact that uh, this idea of fit, and maybe even fit is too a little too tightly uh, narrowing the way kids need to think about the colleges on their list, but having a clear understanding of why each school is on your list will arguably play a greater impact than marginal increases in scores or if a school is test optional, even taking the test. And, and that's something I we get a lot of these questions, Paul, as counselors, you know, I'm pleased that, you know, the schools that I'm applying to, I'm in the range. But I think if I take it one more time, I can raise my ACT score by a point or if it is super scored by a point and a half or my SAT by 30 points. What, am, what, are, what do you say to those people? They're, they're literally saying, t- here, you've been a longtime test prep provider. They're saying, here, take my money. I need you to raise my child's score by 30 points. What do you tell those parents and those students? Hello, Lemming, meet Cliff. (laughs) Yeah. Look, the fact that something has always been done doesn't make it right. I think in sort of the 1400s, if I'd surveyed planet Earth, they would have told me 100% certainty that the world was flat. You want to listen to the people who've spent their entire lives doing this. Guys, I ran one of the largest test prep organizations on this planet. Believe me when I say these tests are nowhere near as important as you believe them to be. Every second that you would have focused on getting that extra point on the ACT, if instead you had done volunteer work or decided that you wanted to do more writing or decided you want to do something that's genuinely pleasurable for you would have led to a better outcome that left you happier. I'll take that trade 10 times in 10. Right. And and I mean, I think you're really highlighting when we talk about that testing not being the most important thing. So often it's self-fulfilling. M- many of the students yep. who score well, well, their their background, where they go to school, their parents, where they went to college, if they have college degrees, the correlation can often be um, one-to-one, right? The student who's got great grades often has strong test scores. Not always, but but often. And so there tends to be a little bit too much focus um, on that. Can I, um, here's something I find to be really useful. Change the lens. Let's look at the behavior 
that the test inspires. Let's look it through the lens of behavior. So for example, let's look at AP exams. Yeah. What behavior does that inspire? Teachers working on the weekends, kids busting their ass to learn a subject better, everyone really sort of digging in to get very real, tangible 360 degree viewpoints. I love that behavior. Driver's tests. Oh, my child is learning not to how to slaughter mass numbers of people on the nation's highways, keeping herself safe. I'm kind of okay with that. What kind of behavior does the SAT inspire? Let me spend two years of my life, thousands of my hours, dollars, and dozens of my hours chasing a small number of points that has no pedagogical value, doesn't make me smarter and stresses me out, and occasionally makes me feel stupid. I hate the behavior. So that's a great lens to look at the veracity and utility of tests. And the SAT and ACT fails all of them. But they certainly make a lot of money for college board and ACT, so they have that going for them. Yeah, well, I I mean... You, you know, I've had a long history in the world of college admissions before kind of slightly detouring into college counseling. And, you know, I'm still friendly with many admissions officers and speak to them about the students that they admit, including students of mine who I see getting admitted to highly selective schools. And so often I ask them, what was the, what was the difference maker here? It has never been, well, his test scores were 30 points higher or she had this many more fives on her APs. It's just never the dozens, hundreds of times I've had that conversation about why was that student admitted? Testing more often than not, it was just kind of got your toe in the door and held it slightly ajar. And then you have to use everything else in your application to make that door um, grow open, go wider so that you could kind of um, rush through it. So Paul, we, you know, both of us obviously have a deep understanding of the admissions process. We have an understanding of the test, but we we have those parents out there who are gonna are really gonna struggle with this. You know, you talked about um, culturally, there are some um, communities where testing has been valued for generations, and we certainly at CollegeWise see parents who are like, yeah, you know, it's ninth, finishing up ninth grade. We're gonna have to start prepping um, for standardized tests. We're telling them, you and I are saying, don't do that. And we've also been talking about all these other wonderful ways in which, um, you know, uh, children can develop themselves. You're also a father, right, Um, of a college graduate, of kids aspiring um, to college. What's the advice that you give, you know, step out of your role as as a tutor, you know, tutoring extraordinaire, step out of your role as a counselor, as a leader in college-wise in the admissions profession, as a parent who understands this process at a deep level, what do you tell those parents who just cannot let go of the idea that testing is still really important to getting into college? So this starts with just my three children. And be judgy if you need to be. No, my three children stink at taking standardized tests. And of course, to make it worse, all of their friends say some version of the following way. You got it made in the shade. Your dad started Princeton Review. You must be really good at standardized tests. So if there's one area where I can sort of lord it over to the family is that I'm the best with bubbles. So I have managed that process. My eldest never took the PSAT because I knew he sucked and I didn't need to reinforce that message. And thus, he didn't go near these exams until his senior year. I protected him from his own sort of worst self. And he took it twice. He prepped for the second one. We didn't spend much time. We didn't spend much money. And I will remind you that I ran the Princeton Review and test prep was free for me. Right. So that's what I did with him. 
My second son hasn't taken the tests at all. He's like, I don't like these tests. They don't like me. We're mutually incompatible. I'm not taking it. My daughter is in a position where the schools that she wants, and she's a junior, continue to sort of hang on to these tests matter. So she was originally going to take the test at the ACT in April. We decided that was the right exam. She will now shift to a sort of a late summer uh, test. Um, she will prep for it because it's going to matter for her, and she'll prep for it with CollegeWise because I like the approach that CollegeWise takes where they sort of subordinate testing to sort of the admissions process, and the tail does not wag the dog. So I think it's different for every individual. There's no reason to take these tests three times. There's no reason to spend more than six weeks prepping for them. There's no reason to spend $10,000 unless you believe that spending that money will return more money in merit aid money. And then it's a return on investment argument and it's a mathematical strategy to get money, not an admission strategy. And that's the difference for me. Yeah, I love it. And that's um, very student-centered, which I think in this particular uh time in history i think we're looking to give students the opportunities to say that isn't important i can control my time i can control my focus and i think letting parents in particular letting your kids know emphasizing to them perhaps this isn't the most important thing you'll be better served by going more deeply in your chemistry your love of chemistry or that volunteering that you're doing or your relationship with your grandmother or your little brother i hope that's something that a lot of students and um, parents will kind of you know, keep their focus on. And so, you know, kind of summing it up, I, I think you and I have been talking about it, it has its place, um, a diminished place, and perhaps on a daily basis being diminished further. Um, and so it should be taken seriously, but probably not to the extent the vast majority of students and parents um, do take it. So, Paul, um, you've worn many hats in the educational space um, in uh, recent uh, centuries, decades, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> final Final thoughts, final pieces of advice to our listeners out there. I have one, and it came from you, and therefore it is painful for me to end with your wisdom. <laughs> a fundamental Ladies truth. This is a fundamental truth. This, this was season one was the fundamental yeah. truths. Ladies, gentlemen, all stripes, all colors, <laughs> all hues, all types. The guy who was probably the leading expert on admissions in this country, the guy who has worked at three different highly selective colleges, three minutes ago said, never, ever, ever did I make a decision about a kid based upon her standardized test scores, and nor do I have a single colleague who ever did that. No one ever said 30 points mattered. They're not lying to you. Abandon ship, all ye who enter here. You don't have to hyper-focus on tests. They have a purpose. Use them exclusively for that purpose and stay sane. This endeth my first podcast. Thank you. I never quite know what I'm going to get in a conversation with Paul, but I mean that in the best way possible. As usual, amidst the humor, and let's just say peculiar phrasing, he brought his extraordinary depth of knowledge to hammer home the truth that standardized testing is only one part, an increasingly smaller part, of the entire admissions puzzle. Colleges are going to continue to value four years of high school over one Saturday morning. Next week on Get Wise, we'll head to the East Coast as I chat with one of my counseling colleagues, Rhiannon Shade, about college affordability and the fundamental truth that the sticker price is not the price. Go to collegewise.com for more advice. We've got live webinars, how-to guides, and plenty of other resources. Appreciate you listening and look forward to you joining us next week.